0: So with all that being said, I would love for you to open your Bibles up to Exodus chapter 22, Exodus chapter 22, and, uh... We're going to be actually all over the place in the book of Exodus, chapters 22 through 24. Uh, we're going to do kind of the pattern that we have been doing for the last few weeks, where we're kind of jumping around and, and, uh, and kind of trying to understand the themes that are going on inside the law. Exodus 20, 20 through 23, this is called the book of the covenant, uh, this is Moses' covenant. This is, uh, he brings this to Israel, and this is the moment where he kind of presents, hey, here is God's law. Now, there will come books after this that explain, like, what does the book of the covenant mean? But these, these really three chapters are very significant. This is God solidifying his relationship with his people. So uh, I have a question for you. Have you ever felt like someone has information that you don't? Have you ever felt like a group of people, maybe even, were operating, and you were a part of that group, and, and somehow all the people in that group had information that you yourself did not have? Okay, so, uh, so in these experiences, you see things happen that don't make sense to you. Why don't they make sense? Well, because you don't have all the information, right? You will see people act in a certain way. All of a sudden, people are responding and acting differently. They're having uh, different conversations, and you don't know why these things are happening. It just doesn't make sense. You feel like they all have some information that you don't have. Uh, When I was a senior in high school, uh, I I was in my choir, and it was like uh, we were doing a celebration of seniors, and And so everybody got to stand up and say something after a song, or we would, like, introduce the songs. And so uh, I was not really a great public communicator. I I had not figured out what it means to talk to a group of people, but I was standing up there, and I was kind of introducing my song, and saying some words, and I thought, you know what, like, I know it's important for communicators to tell jokes, so I'm going to tell a joke on, and so I was standing up there, and I was telling a joke, and I started telling this joke, and I can't even remember what the joke was, or what the punchline was, but I let it go, and nobody did anything, and I was, and then I, so I kind of kept talking a little more, and somebody from the crowd said, stop, and I'm stop like and I, so i'm like okay well you know these people they it's somebody just playing along so i started laughing along with the person and uh, and they're like no really stop. And, uh, and let me tell you, uh, they all had in the room, at the same time, everybody had a piece of information that I did not have. Because behind me, on the choir risers, somebody had passed out while I was talking and delivering oh. my joke. Yeah, it was crazy. And I'm sitting up here making jokes like a fool. I'm sitting here and talking and trying to get people to laugh and wondering what's going on. Everybody is responding in a way that I just do not understand, right? They all had a piece of information that I did not have. That was vital to me, being able to talk to the room in that moment, right? So so people who do any sort of cross-cultural work, they encounter this as well, right? You walk into a different culture. You're trying to acclimate to that culture. You discover that to be accepted among these people, there are certain things that you have to do that just do not make sense to you, right? But but you figure out as you kind of work yourself in that you have to do them if you want to be effective in this culture. So, uh, so if certain actions are expected of us, but they do not make sense to us, then, uh, then two things are likely to happen. Number one, we are likely going to have a low value for those actions that are expected of us. We won't see them very highly. And then the second thing that's going to happen likely is that you are going to be prone to neglect those actions. You actually don't understand the reason why it's there. Because like, we just naturally opt to live out of what makes sense to us. So I'll ask a different but similar question do you ever feel like God has information that you don't? Because God asks a whole lot of us at different points. And sometimes I don't totally understand. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to me. Like, in fact, here's what I know. Every person in this room very likely has had a run-in with God where God had certain expectations that did not make sense for you. And when things don't make sense, you know, it becomes really easy to neglect them. So we're in a series in the book of Exodus, and uh, that series is called Decisions. And this is what we've been saying through this series. Our decisions and heated moments tell a story. So, so God is giving his people a law, and that law is meant to inform their decisions. Some of the things that we will read today, I'm going to give you a forewarning, they will not make sense they won't make sense to us and quite frankly some of them even didn't make sense to the israelites when they received them like some of the things that we'll read some of them uh you know it has a lot to do with the fact that we're not desert desert israelites right so when we read these passages we don't actually understand exactly what was being talked about but but some of these things didn't even make sense to the israelites Right, So God is going to tell them to do some things and not to do other things, and it's easy to look at these commands and go, okay, God, what, what's up? What's the deal? So, so know this. It is the supreme human temptation to call God into question. It is the supreme human temptation to call God into question. Genesis chapter 3. It started with a question. God really say you should not eat from that tree? Job, in the book of Job, you see Job, he's like encountering all sorts of things that don't make sense to him, right? And he is striving to stay faithful to God. He, uh, he, you know, wants to understand though. And so what Job, we see Job wanting to do throughout the book, maybe he actually like wants to put God on the witness stand, Like, he wants God to kind of attest to what's happening, right? He doesn't want to say something disparaging, but he's going, God, what the heck is going on, right? He wants to question him, right? There's a reality because of our brokenness, actually, that, that no being, no being in all of the universe has undergone more scrutiny than God. Right, because he just bears the full weight of all of our expectations, and when he has expectations, and we want to question them, like all of us are prone to question. Right. So, so before we go much farther, um, I just want to say something: God can handle your questioning. Like he is big enough for that. Right, like the root of our questions comes from doubt, right? God can handle your doubt. He is big enough for that. But hear me, please don't stop there. Please don't stop there. God's heart is not for you to stay in that place. He wants you to move beyond. God's God's heart is that you would trust him. That's his heart. It's laced throughout all of scripture. So when Israel obeys commands that don't make sense, you know what they do? They tell a story about who God is. They tell a story about a God who is trustworthy because these commands don't make sense to them and yet they're supposed to do them anyway. When we obey commands that don't make sense to us, we might actually look a little weird to the surrounding world, to the people who are around us, and here's the thing, we tell a story about a God who is trustworthy when we do things that don't make sense to the rest of the world. So this morning, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at some of these commands in the law that just don't seem to make sense, and we're going to explore the questions that these commands bring up. So I really, I have two goals this morning. Number one. I want to help us see how things that seem to not make sense actually do make sense. So I want to do that, but then, uh, so, and just, like, take a note here, like, we've been talking about how do we talk to our neighbors, how do we engage people who, uh, you know, we're trying to see drawn to Christ, and... uh for what it's worth, some of these questions that we're going to talk about this morning, these are questions that people come up with frequently when they read the Bible and they read the Old Testament. Right? These, are, these are constant questions that come up again and again. So, I, so if you're like engaging people and you're like, how do I engage them? Pay attention to these questions and how we talk about them. So that's that. I want to help us make sense of these questions. But number two, I want to help us trust God in spite of things not making sense. Okay, so um, there are some commands, especially in the Old Testament, that seem to be random. Like, uh, I suspect... Some of them actually seem to be random to the Israelites as well. And, and the moral implications, like when we see those commands, there are some commands you read and you go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. The moral implications of that command are really clear. But there are other commands where you just don't get like, why does God care about this? So Exodus twenty two thirty one. 31. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs, Like, my first inclination when I read that, now, again, I'm not a desert Israelite, but when I read that, I just go, why not? Like, why is this such a big deal? There, the, the, it seems somewhat specific, right? Uh, there's, there's actually, like, these few chapters, there's limited space in this part of the law, right? There's not a ton here. So out of all the things that God could say, he says, don't do this. And so I'm inclined to say, what's the big deal? So that's one example. Another example. Exodus 23, 18. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. So for what it's worth, I actually can think up some possible explanations for this. It has a lot to do with Passover, right? But still, it seems especially random, especially when this is what the next verse says. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, I don't know about you, but, like, as far as temptations go, that one is not very high on the list. <laughs> like, I am, I am not just, like, itching to go and boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So I read this, and I, I'm like, what's the deal? Like, on the surface, it can seem like God is maybe being a little random. Right? So, so picking and choosing on a whim what is and isn't important to him. So so this observation, it would create a question for us. Here's the question. Isn't God just being arbitrary? Isn't God just being arbitrary? Like when we ask this question, uh, this is what's going on inside of us. We see a God that seems very human because we know how we make decisions. And most of us don't make decisions very logically all the time, right? We get whims. We get impulses. And and so we ask this question, it may lead us to think that God is maybe more guided by in-the-moment feelings rather than thought and intention and logic. And I get asking this question, but here's where we need to be careful. When we look at an action or a command of God and say, that seems random, illogical, or disordered, You can't make that evaluation without this basic assumption. All of my evaluations are intentional, logical, and well-ordered, at least more so than God's. And so, so what you do when you say, you know, isn't God just being arbitrary? What you're actually doing and what we actually do when we ask this question is we are lifting ourselves up above god and looking down on him and saying i have the capacity to be able to evaluate you so instead we ought to ask is there some way that seems something that seems to be arbitrary It maybe it, it looks like this to us but is there some way that this might actually make sense like that's the better question to ask Instead of going, God, you seem arbitrary, we should ask God, is there a way that this actually makes sense? And funny enough, it does if we consider a big overarching idea. Exodus 22:31. You shall be consecrated to me like how he kind of uh, leads off this section. He's saying, you need to be set apart to me. And we talked about this idea of consecration a little bit last week. This is the overarching idea surrounding these commands. God answers this question, what will my people do that uniquely sets their direction toward me? What will my people do that uniquely sets them apart towards me? Well, the first thing they're gonna do, they're gonna avoid flesh torn by beasts. Like, why would they do this? Well, when this happens, what happens is blood mingles with flesh. It becomes hard to tell the two things apart, and eating blood was forbidden for God's people for two reasons. Blood represented life that was in the body, and on top of that, blood was God's means that he had established for atoning for sin. So when, so when God's people removed the blood from whatever they ate, it was a process of recognizing that blood has a special function for God's people. So there's an explanation for that. Like it makes sense when, when we understand God's heart. So um, then he says, Don't let the fat of my feast remain until morning. This is related to Passover, and again, Passover was meant to tell a story, a unique story about when God's people kind of had to get ready quickly, and everything happened in one night, and they had to kill this Passover lamb and kind of spread the blood over the doorpost, and everything happened quickly, God's saying, don't wait. Don't wait to let the fat go until morning. Like, everything needs to be taken care of overnight because in one night, God sent his angel and protected his people because of the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. They're telling a story, right? They're setting themselves apart as God's people. Okay, and then the, the difficult one. Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Uh, this is, by the way, probably one of the ones that even Israelites may have gone, What? What? That doesn't necessarily make sense. So, so this applies more practically to the land that they were going into, the people of the land that they were going into, and the practices of those people. You see, God has information that they don't. It's very likely that this practice of boiling a goat in its mother's milk is is a uh, a practice of idol worship and false religion, right? And and this is, this is something that these people would do, likely to get some kind of blessing from their gods. Uh, and, and on top of all of this, it's, it's recognized as being in conjunction with idol worship. And what is God's command? Be consecrated to me. Right? So, so it's, it's, again, he's saying you are to be set apart. So all of these commands, they have purpose and they have intention, even if we don't see it immediately. So God is not arbitrary. Right? He wants his people to have practices and, and also not do certain practices to make sure that his people are set apart from the other people of the land because it is a land of really great confusion. Like There are people worshiping all sorts of gods and, and lifting up all sorts of gods and engaging in all sorts of practices, and God wants it to be clear who his people are. He's not just being arbitrary. Okay, so let's deal with some other laws that seem not to make sense. Exodus twenty three thirteen. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Now this does, you know, on the surface make sense. Right? God is God alone. He wants to be worshipped alone. But let's continue on. Exodus twenty-three, twenty-four. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. He goes on in verse 32. says, You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. And if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Like, this, this seems perfectly reasonable. All of these things that God would ask seem perfectly reasonable. Until these israelites that he is giving the command to get into the middle of the land that he's giving them and then they witness the extreme sensual appeal that comes with idol worship right they they see the way that uh, people engage in the worship of their idols they see the the blessings the blessings that those other idols offer like those gods let you determine exactly what blessing is going to look like for you. Those gods have no moral restrictions that they place around their worship. Those gods have all sorts of self-indulgent practices as a part of their worship, and so God knows something that the Israelites don't know in this moment. False worship will be alluring to them. It will entice them. They will be inclined to follow after false gods. And so Israel, if they're not careful, they will allow these commands to create a question for them. Isn't God just restricting my freedom? Isn't God just restricting my freedom? So let's talk about what makes sense to Israel. They have only seen and known polytheism. They don't know what it means to worship one God alone because they've only witnessed people worship ever multiple gods. Multiple gods were common. All nations around them have multiple gods. And no national God, right, because if we think about this, uh, they're going to be inclined to just see Yahweh as their national God. No national God would restrict worship of other gods, but their national God does. Right? So so even now they're going, our God is, is kind of restricting our freedom. So if they didn't trust Yahweh, they would be inclined to see him as kind of this great killjoy who's taking away their opportunities. You know what? We do this. Like this is a common narrative for why many people leave the church. I just want to live my life. I want to live for me. Like I need to find my truth no matter what I have to abandon in the process. But if God created everything with intention... And then if we, if we as humans are somehow prone to brokenness and sin, like if those two things are true, God creates everything and he has an intention and a purpose for it, and we, we are prone to brokenness and sin, then we need to consider the possibility that what we call freedom is actually another form of slavery. Like, we need to be open to that possibility. If God is perfect, and he is infinite, and he creates with intention, and we are broken and sinful, then we need to be open to the possibility that what we would call freedom is actually another form of slavery. And in Egypt, this freedom of the multiple gods letting you do what you want, you know what it led to? It led to the oppression of Israel. They became slaves, literal slaves. This freedom, it... It looks good from afar, but it comes up short. Like, can't I just enjoy a drug-induced experience? Can't I just date whoever I want to date? Can't I just kind of take all the limitations I want to off of my sexuality? Can't I keep my money for myself and do what I want to do with it? Can't I just add one more piece of stuff to my collection of stuff, right? Pursuit of more and better. All of these things, they look like freedom, but they ultimately become slave masters. They permit us to numb ourselves to real life. They lead us to seeking more and never actually satisfy us. And they lead us to actually neglect our neighbors in the process of these pursuits. And God knows all of this. And so he wants to make sure that they know. I created you. I saved you. I offer you purpose. Freedom is found only with me. Okay, so one more set of questions arise out of these laws. Verse 20 of Exodus 22: Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So we read laws like this, especially, you know, as God is going to send Israel into the land. And and quite frankly, when we encounter all of the results of this particular law and all of its implications, even into the book of Joshua, we'll, we're inclined to look at this and we see it as harsh and unnecessary standing from our high places and looking down and evaluating God. Right? This is harsh punishment for false worship. And it is also the very command that they were to take with them. As they walked into the land, they were supposed to devote all of the property and all of the people and the places that they took in their conquest. They were supposed to devote those things to destruction. That's God's command. Exodus 23, uh, 20 through 21 reveals more to us. It says this behold I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared pay careful attention to him and obey his voice so here God is, is telling them that the conquest of the land and the conquest of this land I'm going to send my angel my commander and for what it's worth this commander is actually like pre-incarnate Jesus before he was born on earth he's going to go and lead them into battle He's going to go in front of Israel and do this. So God himself, God there before them is going to lead them into battle. So verse 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you into the land of the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. Right? Like, isn't, isn't God kind of harsh toward these people? Isn't he a little unkind? Doesn't actually, like, if we stand from just all the perspectives that we have in our culture, doesn't this kind of look like what we think hatred looks like? Right, so we're inclined to, again, ask a question. Is the God of the Bible really a good God? And I get the question. But, this is apparently one of those places where God has more information than we do, right? Apparently, there is something so incredibly vile about the people of this land. Like, it is, in fact, gut-wrenching. I hesitate to even talk about the practices of the people of this land up here because when you actually consider what they're doing, it drives you crazy, right? They take infants and place them on burning altars to sacrifice to their gods. Like sexual abuse and sex trafficking are a regular part of their worship. There is no protection of neighbor for them. There is only abuse and self-interest among these people. Right? These things and more grew to a point where God was going to judge and end these people and then give their land to Israel. And we are prone to stand in judgment of God. But God knows what we do not know. Right? And apparently there are times when the most good thing for God to do is to actually put an end to the evil that human beings are doing in a particular place. Okay, so I've answered some questions. Right? I maybe have helped us to see perhaps how some of these questions might make sense. And then you may still have other questions after those questions, right? Because as you read the, the Old Testament law, like it keeps coming up, right? Things continue to not make sense. So, uh, so instead of me trying to anticipate and answer all of those questions, we might be here for a long time if I, I did that. I want to ask you a question. How many questions does God need to answer before you trust him? How many questions does God need to answer? Like, what is the limit? Where is the line at? You know what, there came a point for me in my journey of faith where I realized the questions do not stop. Right, like there are things I read in the Bible today that still don't make sense to me. Right? And, And like, whether it's, me being formed by my culture and my heart language, and I just read them, and I go, okay, that is just completely foreign to me. Whether it's something I just literally can't wrap my mind around, there are things that I come across every once in a while where I just, I just don't get it, right? There are judgments and perspectives that I am inclined to hold and stand in evaluation of God, right? But I have limited understanding, and God's ways are infinite. And so so I'm in the midst of this journey in my faith where I'm questioning God, and I actually allowed my questions and I allowed my doubts to permit my rebellion against God. Right, and I had to finally, like God brought me to a point where I had to finally decide, is he trustworthy? Is God trustworthy? Uh, Pastor Don says it like this. Uh, He's shared this story with us a few times. Because I had to decide, you are God and I am not. So whenever we disagree, you win, right? God has asked and will continue to ask things of us that may not immediately make sense, right? And he's gracious to help us make sense of those sometimes, but sometimes he just wants to know if we trust him. All right, so church, I want to end by letting you know this. The God who patiently withstands our small judgments is trustworthy. Why? Because even with our questions and even with our pride and even with our judgments, he still makes space for us. Right, like after Moses gives this law, God, he calls the elders of Israel up to the mountain and they build an altar. They, they prepare a sacrifice and they, they kill a bull and they're going to extend it as an offering. They're gonna sprinkle the blood on the altar. And as they do this, I think for some, at least, at the very least, it's gotta be in Moses' head. They're gonna start to realize something. This law shows us to be broken His principles, God, His principles and His ideals, we are being led by a holy God and His commands, they all expose us at the level of our hearts, which means every moment that He chooses to be with us is an act of mercy. Every moment that He fights for us is an act of grace. It is undeserved. We're reminded again and again that it requires payment of blood. It requires sacrifice. Right, but he saved us from Egypt and he has actually built a way for relationship to be possible. As they're going through this, I wonder if they're realizing just how much God has done to make space for them. So I'd hope that the Israelites would look at God's mercy in this moment and say he is trustworthy. Exodus 24, 6 through 8 tells us the story. Moses took half of the blood And put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant. And read it in the hearing of the people. And they said. All the Lord has spoken. We will do. And we will be obedient. So verse 8. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said behold. The blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. There is no way they could read this law and not know that God had to do something to make space. So God, in his mercy, made this space called sacrifice where payment had to be made, but God would continue to be with, with them. And so God shows himself in this moment to Israel to be trustworthy. He was trustworthy at that point. Okay, so we're going to do some so what's. So what number one. Just think about this. God is building your trust muscle for trials yet to come. Right? So every opportunity for obedience is an exercise of our trust. You know, like, okay, so when we stumble and we disobey and we fall short as Christians, we don't carry shame, right? We get this. His blood covers us. We don't have to be wondering if he's always going to strike us down for these things. We know that we are freely accepted, right? But obedience, especially, especially when obedience doesn't make sense, when we take those steps, it builds our trust. Because in the moment of those steps, when we do something that God tells us to do, even though it doesn't make sense, we see his goodness. We see that God actually knows better than we do, that he is trustworthy. So obey God with whatever next step of obedience he's given you, because that next step of obedience is a process of building trust in you for the future steps of obedience that he has for you. Number two, Jesus' death and resurrection is proof that God continues to be trustworthy. God showed himself there with Israel, making a space, making it possible for them to be with him through sacrifice. And then Jesus comes. God loved us so much that, that he made a permanent an everlasting way for us to be with him. Right, Jesus came knowing our tendency to question, knowing our tendency to lift ourselves up above God and stand in evaluation. Jesus came knowing all of our doubts. Jesus came knowing that we will use our doubts as an excuse for disobedience. Jesus came knowing that our preference find a way to justify ourselves and not listen to God he came knowing all of that and he willingly submitted himself that he might die on a cross so that we could be accepted with God he died and if we place our trust in him his blood covers us we can be in right relationship with God and we know this is true because he didn't stay dead he came up out of the ground. God showed his goodness. He vindicated it. And then Jesus arises from the dead to show us that God is good and he is trustworthy. Right, so if you have never trusted in Jesus, I want you to know today that he offers freedom from sin. He offers salvation. He offers right relationship with God for eternity. So my invitation to you, my ask of you, would today be the day that you decide to trust Jesus? Would today be the day that you decide to stop letting the questions create a barrier and simply trust God? Would you pray with me, please? Father, I, um, I ask that you would help all of us in those places, those next steps of obedience where we are finding it hard to trust, that you would help us to step beyond our questions and to follow you, to trust you, to obey you. But I thank you for the gift that you have given us, that you have actually made space for us to be with you. That you've made it possible for us to be in right relationship with you, that this law again and again would show us to come up short, would expose our heart to ask questions that are not right of us to ask. And yet again and again, you would remind us that your blood, your grace is sufficient. So Lord, help us to be grateful and thankful. Stir up the affections of our heart towards Jesus. Lord, and anybody who is resisting because of their questions, would you help them to break down the walls of their questions and see you as you are trustworthy? We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.